Good morning. It's a delight to be with you this morning. Would you turn with me in Luke's Gospel to Luke chapter 19, where you'll find your place in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. It's a text that I think is familiar, but then I think we'll find that there are some unfamiliar things in this as we consider Jesus' procession to Jerusalem as He comes to this final week of His ministry before His resurrection. As you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. Jesus is Lord. The early church proclaimed, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messianic King from David's line. But as the gospel went forth to the Gentiles, it became necessary to declare this same truth in a more universal way. And so the church began to proclaim that not only is Jesus the Christ, but that it means, for Him to be the Christ, means that He is Lord. It's the same confession, universally understood by Jew and Gentile. In this confession, we confess and we proclaim that Jesus is not only the Lord of Jews, not only the Lord of a region or a domain, but that He is Lord of all things in heaven and on earth. And we're called then, as we proclaim this message, to respond to this declaration that Jesus is Lord, to respond to the Lordship of Christ. Now, there are two ways in which we can respond to His Lordship. In the first place, we can resist His Lordship and oppose Him, as so many throughout all history have. In the second place, we can submit to Him as our Lord. And the text that's before us this morning that we will consider will show us that resistance to the Lordship of Christ is both futile and tragic, while submission to Christ is joyful and glorious and right. And so through this portrait of Jesus as Lord and the depictions of these two responses to Him, we are called to embrace the path of joy through submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me beginning in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to respond to the Lordship of Christ in a way that is right, in a way that is for our good and for your glory, in a way that is joyful and submissive in every way. For he is Lord of heaven and earth. And we are your creatures, made through him and for him, and redeemed through him and for him. Make this, therefore, Lord, to be our joy through your word, heard and received in faith and obedience, implanted upon our hearts and our minds. Make us to rejoice, O Lord, in the Lordship of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the, the triumphal procession, this passage, or the triumphal entry as we more commonly know it, is a passage, is an account that is found in all four Gospels, and yet all four Gospels look at it from a slightly different perspective. You're familiar with the hosannas that the people declared, the palm branches that they laid before Jesus. Luke doesn't give us those details, but Luke does invite us to look at other details of what is taking place in this text. And one of those details that is unique to Luke is the context of this passage, the way in which Luke has presented it in relation to other events in the life and ministry of Jesus. No other gospel has the parable of the minas that preceded it that we looked at last week. We see, indeed, the parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel later on in Jesus' ministry when he's already in Jerusalem. But that's a somewhat different telling, a version of that parable. We see the parable of the minas in Luke, in Luke chapter 19, immediately preceding this text, and that's important because it prepares us to understand what is going on. The two things mutually interpret one another. You recall from last week, as we looked at the parable of the minas, that it concerned a nobleman who went into a far country to receive a kingdom. And you recall also that there were citizens in his land who opposed his rule. They didn't want him to be king over them, and they were counted as en his enemies and met a tragic fate because of their futile opposition to the lordship of that nobleman in the parable. As we come to this text, we see that Jesus is clearly presented as both Lord and King, and the Pharisees are presented as opponents of His rule. In fact, Jerusalem itself embodies that opposition to the rule of God, the rule of His Christ, ironically and tragically. And so they will meet a tragic fate. And so the narrative that follows that parable ties itself to that parable so that we see a mutual interpretation and we see that in that parable Jesus was presenting himself as that well-born man who was going to go into a far country, into a heavenly country to receive a kingdom from the Father and then to return. And in this text we see the actualization that, of that in the real events of history, not in the parabolic form, so that we might respond appropriately as the faithful servants in that parable, we might also respond rightly by submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that it breaks down into three sections, and we can summarize these by headings. 
We're going to see the king and his cult. We're going to see the king and his people. And we're going to see the king and his enemies. And in each section, something will be declared about the king and about the cult. Either Jesus will make the declaration, or his people will make the declaration, or his enemies will make some sort of declaration. But in it, we're going to see the Lordship of Christ, and we're going to see different responses to the Lordship of Christ. And so first, in verses 28 through 34, we consider the king and his cult. In this section, Jesus declared and showed his Lordship through his instructions and his commands. He commanded his disciples, and they obeyed. But he also told them all that they would find. And it happened precisely as he said. Look back at this text with me and let's observe what we we can see of Jesus' demonstrated lordship. We read, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And we are reminded of that theme in Luke as Luke draws our attention once more to Jerusalem as the destination of our Lord. He's going on ahead of them. He's hurrying on his way. We can see in other gospel accounts that this caused them some fear and trepidation because they knew the possibilities of what awaited Jesus and they did not embrace that purpose the way that Christ himself embraced it. But he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and as he drew near to these two, uh, what you could consider something like suburbs of Jerusalem, Bethphage and Bethany, these two little villages, and as he drew near to the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. What Jesus does here is to demonstrate and to declare by these commands and actions that he is Lord and that he is the Messianic King. How do these actions do that? Well, first, he takes upon himself a royal prerogative. He commandeers somebody's animal. You could think of it like this. If you were in Washington, D.C., and you were driving your car, and for some reason, I don't know why he would, but the president had need of your vehicle, then he might order the Secret Service to commandeer your vehicle. And he has that prerogative to do that in the case of emergency or something like that. Of course, that's an outlandish idea. It would never happen. He has his own vehicles. But you get the picture. There's a royal prerogative. He commandeers a cult. In fact, he declares his lordship over the cult. One way that we could potentially render these, this idea is he says to go and procure the cult. And he tells the disciples what to say to the owners if they question their actions. He says, tell them its lord has need of it. It's a perfectly reasonable way to render that text. The lord of that cult has need of it. But there's more to this picture. Not only does the cult The commandeering of the cult show that he asserts a royal prerogative, a royal right, but it also shows that he is focused on a royal kind of animal. It's an unbroken animal. It's a a cult on which no one has ever sat. A king in that time and in that place would have ridden on a beast that no one else was permitted to ride on. In fact, one that no one had ever before ridden upon. That was a picture with royal connotations that would have been understood by the people of Jesus' day. So he chose this unbroken animal, a king's animal. But more than that, what he did in this charge to his disciples was he ordered his entrance into Jerusalem so that it would convey 
a more striking message to the people who witnessed his entrance into Jerusalem and his procession. Namely, that he's not just a king. He's not just a lord. He's not just any king. Not just any son of David. But he is the long-awaited son of David about whom the prophets spoke. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The one who would receive a kingdom without end. How does this show it? As a fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. These words spoken by the prophet Zechariah concern the Messianic king. But they call upon his people to respond in a particular way to their king. And it gives them the information they need to identify that king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah prophesied. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus so ordered his entrance into Jerusalem that he would fulfill these words, but also so that he might make a statement in that fulfillment. And the statement is this, I am a king, in fact, I am the king, the king of Israel, the long-awaited Christ, the Lord of the universe. That was the message he was proclaiming in procuring this cult. And he demonstrated that he really is. You see, anyone could, could say, well, I'll ride an unbroken colt into Jerusalem and make a statement like that. Just like if I were to roll up to church someday driving in a Rolls Royce, I'd be making a statement about myself, and you'd say, well, that, our pastor must think something about himself. Jesus is making a statement. Anyone could make such a statement, but most would not. Most don't have that kind of confidence nor could anyone back up the statement like Jesus did with such a clear and definitive demonstration of the truth of his lordship. For, very simply, all things unfolded exactly as he said they would. Not only did he say, go get the cult, he told his disciples exactly how they would find it, exactly what they needed to say to the owners of it, and exactly how the owners would respond. And it all unfolded precisely as he said. Jesus demonstrated his lordship in his sovereignty over these events, his prediction of what would take place, his command to his disciples, and in their finding everything as he said. And so in the king and his cult, we see that Jesus is the messianic king. Now our attention is turned by Luke to the king and his people. And here in their actions, Jesus' disciples will affirm his lordship with joyful praise. They honored him with royal pomp, not merely as a son of David, but as the greater son of David, who would fulfill all of their hopes and expectations. They were making a statement through their words and their actions. Look at what they do. They set him on a colt. As James Edwards observes in his commentary, this is like an enthronement. The way in which Luke describes this event is the same way that you would describe someone being set on a throne. He is being set by his disciples on a colt. He's being enthroned by them. And as we continue, we see that they lay their cloaks before him in the same way that Israel honored Jehu when he was made king. We can read about that in the book of Kings. We see that they laid their cloaks before him. And so, too, they take this action that would have been understood in Jesus' context as having royal connotations. They were convinced by his mighty works of these truths, we find. 
And so they did what Zechariah called them to do. They rejoiced greatly. Look at the language of what we read. As he was drawing near, this is in verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They honored Jesus as their king. They rejoiced greatly as Zechariah called them to do. The whole multitude of his disciples with that loud voice, they honored him as king, not merely with their own words, but also with the words of Scripture adapted to this moment. For they cited the first half of Psalm 118, verse 26. It was a pilgrim psalm that they would often sing as people came into Jerusalem on a pilgrimage concerning pilgrims. But in Psalm 118, verse 26, we see that it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so it rightly can be applied to anyone who comes in the name of the Lord. But they apply it specifically to this one with a slight adaptation of the language. And they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. You can't say that about anyone coming into Jerusalem, but they say it about him. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they recognize in his kingship, in his royalty, as the Messiah, that he somehow stands as a right representative of God. He comes in the name of God, in the name of the Lord, into David's royal city. He comes as the king, receiving the honor of a king, as the Messiah. Not only this, that we see the way that, that Luke presents this picture is as a kind of reversal of David's departure from Jerusalem in the days when Absalom seized the throne. Well, let me show you this. Look back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, if you hold your place in Luke, to 2 Samuel chapter 15. You'll find your place in verse 30, and I'll give you some of the context. But here, Absalom, David's son, had uh, formed a conspiracy and had carried out a coup and had taken the throne from his father. This, of course, was a consequence for David's sins that God brought upon him ultimately. But here we see that David flees Jerusalem. And in verse 30, we see these words to describe David's uh, departure from Jerusalem. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. And he was told, David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it's really that first verse that I want to draw your attention to, that David goes up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. We have the same location on the way out of Jerusalem. But instead of great rejoicing, he and his multitude, there's great weeping. Instead of royal honor, he goes barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people with him doing the same thing. David is going out of Jerusalem, having lost his kingship for a moment as his son has usurped the throne. But here we see Jesus on reversing that picture, coming into Jerusalem, honored as a king, riding on a colt, honored by the people with great rejoicing, coming into Jerusalem as the king receive his kingdom. So the people honored Jesus as their king, as the son of David, who would reverse 
these things that happened in the past who would bring about the fulfillment of God's promises as the Messianic King. And they found joy. They found joy in honoring Him in this way. Look at this that they say as well. Luke, it, it, Luke characterizes them or presents their words, not just as saying these words of Psalm 118, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, but look at what, he, what they pair that with. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they say. Now I want you to consider and remember what the angels said to the shepherds all the way back in Luke chapter 2. The birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Now think about that reversal. This angelic declaration begins with glory to God in the highest, and ends with a declaration of peace on earth. And now these people who have embraced Jesus as their king respond with their own declaration that reverses the order and also puts the focus on heaven, saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there's a, 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 a completeness that Luke is, uh, is, is portraying in his gospel narrative. That what Jesus does in His messianic work, ultimately, is to do what's necessary to accomplish this peace between heaven and earth. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they say. The angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men. And Jesus is the one, as we read in Colossians 1.20, who came, indeed, to Jerusalem to do what? To make peace by the blood of His cross. He came to Jerusalem to make that peace, to make possible that peace, to accomplish the peace that we most need, peace with God, peace between heaven and earth, accomplished by the long-awaited king who came to go to a cross and to suffer and die in our place, so to make atonement for our sin and make peace between God and people who embrace him with joy and faith and submission to the lordship of Christ. And so in this statement then, as we see it, they are proclaiming that you are the king, the long-awaited Christ, and even if they don't fully understand what he will do to accomplish this peace, they rejoice in what he is doing and what he will do because they have submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ, even if they have not fully understood what that submission must mean. But not everyone embraces this message of peace. Not everyone embraces the lordship of Christ, and so we see that in the example of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. We're reminded that Pharisees were among Jesus' disciples, whether they themselves were his disciples or were just mixed in with the group. Some would indeed become his disciples and some had become. But some of them heard these words, witnessed these honors bestowed upon Jesus, and for them it was beyond the pale. It did not matter that he was riding a colt, Anyone could do that, as we observed before. Anyone could arrange these events. They regarded it as a mark of pride, perhaps even blasphemy at this moment. And so they rebuke Jesus by calling upon Him to rebuke His disciples. They don't address Him as Lord. They address Him merely as teacher. Maybe they consider Him a better teacher than themselves, but they're still regarding Him as on the same level, the same status. They are teachers. He's a teacher. This teacher needs to get His disciples in line. That's what they're saying. Rebuke your disciples. What you're doing, what they're doing is wrong. Jesus says, no, it's not. 
He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We're reminded of John the Baptist's preaching in the wilderness when he said to the people back in Luke chapter 3 that they should not rely upon their heritage, their, the fact that they were descended from Abraham. As John said in that moment, God could raise up stones, from stones, children of Abraham. It never really came to that. But God could do it. He's done it with Gentiles, making us children of Abraham by faith. As we demonstrate the character of a child of Abraham. And so too, this truth, so important, so real, so true, could not but be proclaimed if the people following Jesus were silent, he declares, then the stones themselves would cry out and bear witness to this truth. And you see the futility of their opposition. You see the certainty of his lordship. You see the strength of his response as Lord. And yet we also see in the verses that follow the tragedy of rejecting the lordship of Christ. When he drew near to the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. I want to remind you of something we find in Luke chapter 10. Because in Luke's gospel, as he presents this narrative, this gospel concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, only in one place in Luke's gospel does he report that Jesus rejoiced. And only in one place in Luke's gospel does he report that he wept, that he wept. In Luke 10, verse 21, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, your gracious will. And here we see those same ideas of hiddenness, of rejection, of revelation, and of the opposite of joy, weeping. Here Jesus weeps as he draws near to the city, saying, Would that you had known on this day the things that make for that peace that we spoke about, peace on heaven, in heaven and peace on earth, peace between God and man. They didn't know those things, and so a judgment of blinding came upon them. But now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the tragedy of unbelief. Tragedy of a refusal to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And I want you to see and observe that it does not delight our Lord. It caused Him to weep. The Lord God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, yet He is just and He is righteous. And those who refuse and refuse and refuse to submit to His Lordship will receive their just reward. But it doesn't delight Him. His delight is in the grace of God given to people through gracious revelation as they submit to His Lordship with faith and repentance, with all the humility that characterizes children in their embrace and their faith in others. We are called to that kind of humility, that kind of faith, that kind of submission to our Lord. That is a delight to God. But people who reject it, there is a just reward that comes upon them, but it's no delight to God. It should be no delight to us. It should wrench our hearts like it wrenches the heart of Christ. For what will come upon Jerusalem because of their refusal to submit 
to him. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will leave no, not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus described there prophetically were all of the events that would take place in the years 66 to 70 A.D., roughly 30-some-odd years after his death. The Romans would come in and lay siege to the city. They would destroy Jerusalem. They would tear down the temple. They would leave no stone upon another. And yet what Jesus is saying is it's not because of the Romans. Ultimately, it's because of God's judgment for your unbelief and rejection. We need to see the tragedy of unbelief, the tragedy of this refusal to submit to the Lordship of Christ. It is futile. There's nothing that we can do to stop Christ from coming into His Lordship, from being Lord of all creation. And yet people try again and again with tragic consequences. As these people, these Pharisees and many in Jerusalem did, at the time of Jesus, because they didn't know the day of their visitation. Those, that word, your visitation, is used again and again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, very frequently, most often, to refer to God's visitation of His people, either in salvation or in judgment. For example, when Joseph speaks to his brothers as they've come down to Egypt, he tells them, the Lord your God will visit you, and He'll bring you out. They'll save you out of Egypt. And throughout Scripture then we see that same kind of idea. Either a saving visitation or a visitation of judgment. Because they didn't know the day of that saving visitation that came with Christ, because they refused to submit to their Lord, His Lordship, God would visit them in judgment. That's the tragedy of unbelief. The tragedy of being an enemy of the King. What we see in that picture, though the Pharisees themselves dishonored uh, Christ and opposed his lordship. It's in fact Jesus in this case, with his words of response, who shows the tragic futility of their opposition. He's the one who makes that statement. This statement that they refused to respond to. And he lamented it. He lamented the tragedy of their unbelief. And we should lament the tragedy of unbelief as well, both in our lives and in the lives of others. And so, as we consider these things, both the warning and the promise, the joy that is promised, but the tragedy that awaits those who refuse it, we need to wrestle with the question, how can we submit joyfully to the Lordship of Christ today and forever? What does that look like in our lives as a people? And the first answer is that we need to know what makes for peace with God, receive what makes for peace, and rejoice in what makes for peace. Jesus came to Jerusalem for this reason, to die for His people on a cross, to make peace by the blood of His cross. Far from an accident, they could not have treated Him so shamefully and cruelly if He had not willingly given Himself up to it. He remained Lord even on the cross. He did this for our sake, to pay for our sins so that we might be forgiven of all our sins. This is what makes for peace between heaven and earth. And we submit to the Lordship of Christ in this matter by trusting Him with faith and with joy, by turning from our sins and repentance and believing in Christ. 
If you have not, today is the day. You are being visited in the sense that you are hearing God's word proclaimed from his word. You're hearing this call to repent and believe. Don't harden your heart any longer, but with submission to Christ, joyfully receive this gospel. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust fully and finally in Him and Him alone, in His work for you and nothing that you bring, and you will be saved unto everlasting joy. And for those of you who have already believed this, hold it fast. Believe it still for all your days. This is the joy of submission to Christ's Lordship. It's the first step, the first appropriate response to the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And second, as people who submit to Jesus' Lordship, we must pursue what makes for peace in our life, in our day, with our hope set in the day of our visitation. As I mentioned, visitation speaks about any time when God comes and visits His people or the world, either for salvation or for judgment. And very often, the one visitation means both. Salvation for His people and judgment upon His enemies. And that's certainly true in the day when Christ returns, when He will come again in His glory, and all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in the space between, in this time between these two visitations, before the first coming of Christ, between the first coming of Christ and His return, we live under His Lordship, and yet, because the world, by and large, does not embrace His Lordship, as we read in Psalm 2, the nations rage against the Lord and against His anointed. We endure all sorts of trials. How can we submit to Christ's Lordship in this situation? The text that we read this morning as a congregation in 1 Peter 2 will guide us. Let me ask you to turn there in your Bibles as we consider more of the context. There in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives some clear and very uh, strong applications of this truth that Jesus is Lord and how we can submit to His Lordship in this day. Peter will say this, going all the way back to verse 4, as you come to Him, that is Christ, a living stone, rejected by men like the Pharisees we've just seen, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. First, we know that God, in fact, has, in some sense, raised up stones to declare these things. We are these stones, as Peter uses this imagery, being built into this holy temple, a habitation for the Lord. He goes on in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The Pharisees disobeyed the word. The Pharisees, by and large, rejected Christ. They stumbled on the cornerstone. He became to them a rock of offense. But for us who are being saved, he can say in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were appointed for this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as his people, as his holy nation, his holy priesthood, in his dominion, in his kingdom. Once we were not a people, Peter says in verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And given all of these truths, what does Peter tell us to do? To live as sojourners, as we said this morning when we read God's word together. To live as sojourners and exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against us as evildoers, just like they spoke against Jesus and his disciples as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will give glory to God on that day because of what they've seen in our lives. Even if they do not glorify and honor Him now, they will one day bow the knee before our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to Him. If we live like this, we're told that they will glorify God because of what they've witnessed in our lives on the day of visitation. So what Peter goes on to do then is to call this people, living as sojourners and exiles, to endure all sorts of hostility, all sorts of mistreatment, just like Jesus endured, endured dishonor and mistreatment from those who should have worshipped Him as Lord. So we're to endure it too. Somehow, our submission to Christ means submission to those whom God has ordained should temporarily be in authority over us. Verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Of course, this doesn't mean you defy God's will and His word if they call you to do it. But in so much as they order affairs in our life, even if we regard it as unjust or as taking away something that is properly our right, in some sense we need to find a way to be submissive to them within the expression that is appropriate in our modern uh, a government in our modern society where we do have a say. We're not under an emperor who is quite so supreme. So we have the ability and the freedom to exercise our influence in ways that are appropriate. But wherein there is an appropriate expression of rule by human institutions, even if we don't like it, we're to be subject to it and to submit to it. How can we do that? By remembering and doing this we're submitting to the Lordship of Christ who has ordained that it should be for a time and a season but not forever. So we're to live in this kind of way. He says the same to servants being subject to their masters even if they're unjust. In that context, the servant had no authority to deal with that unjust master and no freedom to leave his employ. But in doing these things, what are we doing? We are being joyful imitators of our Lord as we submit to His rule in our lives. Peter puts him forward as this example, saying in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to him who judges justly. He himself might uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You have returned to your Lord, and you are called to live like your Lord in His humanity, in His incarnate life. He Himself lived in submission to the Lordship of God the Father. and gave us an example. And that even meant enduring mistreatment and enduring hostility to complete the will of God. And He did it, and He calls us to do likewise so that we might be an example, so that we might demonstrate Christ-likeness to a watching world, and through that demonstration, some may come to believe, but certainly all on the day of visitation will give glory to God because of what they've seen in us. When we do this, as hard as it can be, we're submitting to the Lordship of Christ. So let us do that, not begrudgingly, but with joy, imitating our Lord and trusting His promises as we submit to His rule in our lives knowing that there is a day of visitation appointed that will bring all of these sufferings to an end. And on that day, as appropriate, God will exalt us with Him and in Him, and He will be head over all, seen to be head over all, by all His creatures. We look forward to that day, and in anticipation of it, we proclaim with our words and we proclaim with our lives that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would indeed help us to live in joyful submission to the Lordship of Christ, not just with words, but with our actions. As hard as this may be, we face opposition, ridicule, mistreatment, sometimes just ordinary mistreatment that has nothing to do with our faith in Christ. Let us see it nevertheless as an opportunity to demonstrate our faith in Christ so when people look at us and observe us and say, why do you live the way that you do? We can say, because I am subject to my Lord, I seek to live as He lived. We know that we don't have the strength in us to do this, and so we pray that you would give us that strength by working in us through your Word and through your Spirit to live under the Lordship of Christ with joy in all we do. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.